I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Given Chinese Defense Minister Wei Fenghe's recent visit to Iran, today's episode will explore China's relationship with Iran and the Middle East at large. In the last decade, China and many Middle Eastern countries have significantly upgraded relations. Through the Belt and Road Initiative, China has provided over $123 billion in financing to the region, aiming to promote infrastructure development and political stability. Since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, China has expended efforts to shore up its partnerships abroad, including in the Middle East. Joining us to discuss China-Middle East dynamics is Dr. John B. Alterman, who is Senior Vice President, the Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program here at CSIS. Prior to joining CSIS, John served as a member of the policy planning staff at the U.S. Department of State and as a special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs. And from 2009 to 2019, he served as a member of the Chief of Naval Operations Executive Panel. In addition to his policy work, he often teaches Middle Eastern Studies at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and at George Washington University. He has authored and co-authored four books related to the Middle East and U.S. policy towards the region. Thank you so much for joining us today, John. Bonnie, it's good to see you. For today's discussion, our focus is on China and the Middle East, particularly how countries in the Middle East view China. John, could you start us off with some background and overview of China's relationship with the region? Have the dynamics changed since Xi Jinping took office? They've changed a lot. The dynamics from a Middle Eastern perspective and from a Chinese perspective are very different. And in the Middle East perspective, it's different depending on where you are. You have some countries like Algeria that have had long relationships with China dating back to Mao. And there was a, a sort of friendship based on a revolutionary solidarity. And there are still exchange programs between provinces in China and, and provinces in Algeria. But that was kind of the old style. And for a long time, China wasn't very relevant to the Middle East, and the Middle East wasn't very relevant to China. It started to become more relevant. China became a net oil importer in 1993 or so. And a lot of that oil started coming from the Middle East. And as China's oil imports grew, its imports from the Middle East grew. By the early 2000s, it was clear that if you're an oil exporter, a lot of the growth in global demand is coming from China. And so there began to be increasing focus in the Gulf on what would a China relationship look like. There began to be increasing thinking in China. We have to start learning more about the Gulf, where, where a lot of the oil in the Middle East is. There had been a relationship with Iran that was interesting. But China was, I think, sort of circumspect. In the last five years, China's become a lot more self-assured. The Belt and Road Initiative, in many ways, was a spectacularly successful branding exercise because all these Middle Eastern states said China is a hugely growing power in the world, and we can find our, a way to make ourselves central to the Chinese strategy. And five, six years ago, I saw all sorts of, of Middle Eastern states thinking about ways to make themselves the hub of the Belt and Road effort in the Middle East. 
Up to now, China has principally been interested in economic relations with the Middle East and has sought not to aggravate the U.S. military presence. I'm told that China in the last year or maybe two has started to have more security discussions with Middle Eastern countries. It's, it's begun to widen the aperture. But it seems to me that for the most part, the Middle Eastern states want to bring China in more than China wants to be brought in. That's different depending on, on different states. I think that the Israel relationship is a different relationship. The Egypt relationship is a different relationship. We can talk about the individual ones if you want. But overall, it, it feels to me like China increasingly sees it has interests in the Middle East. The Middle East, partly because of China's domestic economic growth, partly because of China's role in global energy markets, and increasingly in recent years because of a sense that the U.S. was not as committed to the Middle East as it had been in previous years, there's a sense that, that on the Middle Eastern side, they need to develop a deeper relationship with China, and they're interested in seeing what that might look like. Do some countries in the Middle East view China as much more important than others? Which countries really prioritize their relationships with China? No, well, it, it, absolutely. So the country that has the most stake in its relationship with China is Iran. Iran does about 30% of its total trade with China. And that's partly because a lot of countries won't trade with Iran. But the flip side, Iran represents less than 1% of Chinese global trade. And so you have this incredible disparity where Iran is deeply, deeply reliant on China, but China in no way is reliant on Iran. And that creates... I think a, a situation which I'm happy to explore with you a little bit, where I think China uses Iran more than Iran is able to use China. China Iran uses China a little bit. I think China is, is much more creative in its relationship with Iran. It, it partly has used it to get discount on oil from Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia said, oh, well, we have to find a way to distance China and Iran we will sell China discounted oil. So China benefits from two relationships. It benefits from an oil relationship with Iran and an oil relationship from China, with each one trying to keep the, the, the Chinese happy. There are other ways in which I think Iran is, is useful to China in terms of, of distracting the U.S. from the Western Pacific, in terms of perhaps splitting the U.S. From, from its allies at a time when U.S. policy on Iran is, is broadly divergent from what European allies want. Iran represents a tremendous opportunity for China to invest when there's no competition. So that means China can drive a harder bargain, and the Chinese do. But the, the Iranians can't escape the fact that China is the most important international power to them will likely remain the most important international power, and they can't play China off against anybody else. They need to pursue a relationship with China, and, and China uses that to their advantage. Sort of on the other side of the spectrum, uh, you have Israel, which has been interested in a relationship with China, I think partly just because they think China is a, a big power in the world, it's an economic power, it's a technological power, but Israel's very concerned about alienating the United States. And, and there was a while, about five years ago, four years ago, when Israel said, we got this, uh, we don't really need a formal process. We understand technology well. We understand if the Chinese are trying to do some, some surveillance or, or, or implant things. We have really good technology people. 
you don't have to worry about China using investments in Israel to advance its, its intelligence gathering on U.S. troop movements or anything like that. Israel's become a lot more circumspect about its China relationship. It's become a lot more circumspect about the impact that its China relationship will have in its U.S. relationship. And Israelis are quick to assure Americans that the United States is the principal great power relationship for Israel. There's no other power that comes close. And if there's anything that puts the two in competition, Israel knows that its real friendship is, is with the United States and not with China. I think other countries like Egypt have a long relationship with the United States. They're interested in exploring a relationship with China, partly because they think they can get things from China, partly because uh, they want the United States to be a little bit jealous and they like to play one side off against the other. Some of the Gulf states say, look, it's just business. I mean, if you look at, at, at where energy demand growth is coming from, it's coming from China. If you look at where our imports are growing, I mean, the United States is not a net oil importer anymore, but China is. And I think for a lot of the Gulf states, you'd be crazy not to explore deeper economic relationships with China. The other piece of this, and it's important, is a huge amount of Chinese trade goes through the Middle East. About 60% of China's trade with Europe, Africa, and the Middle East goes through the UAE. A lot of Chinese trade with Europe goes through the Suez Canal. So as China thinks about how it's going to trade with the world, having relationships in the Middle East, now what kind of military footprint it should have for those relationships is a problem. And they, I mean, the Chinese government definitely sees the United States as the preponderant military power in the Middle East, and they have no interest in displacing the United States as the preponderant military power. But that also means the U.S. could cut China off from the Middle East, which is a source of vulnerability. So it's a bit of discomfort, but I think China is, is trying to, to have a different kind of relationship with the region. I think China is looking for the the admiration of the region for the Chinese economic experience, and by the way, the Chinese political experience as well. And they'll leave the United States to, to making good friends and, and hostile enemies and everything else, and they'll just try to do business with whoever they can do business with. John, I want to follow up on a point that you made earlier in terms of China seeking more of a security role in the region, and also the point that you made that the United States is less involved in the region. Are Middle Eastern countries looking to China to provide a greater security role? Or is the relationship, as you characterize it, mainly about economics? Yeah, there, there are some things. China sells armed drones the U.S. won't sell. Uh, there are certain kinds of equipment, certainly surveillance equipment you can get from China. There are other kinds of technology equipment that you know better than I do. What people in the U.S. government have said to me is China gives you an 80% solution at a 60% price. And so for a lot of governments, that's attractive. The U.S. goes through this whole process and, and technology assessments and approvals, and it can take a very long time on the military side and also on technology side. And there's a sense that, that Chinese responses will give it to you quickly and will help you with financing. And so that's attractive. I think China is, is wary of getting into the sort of large-scale troop deployments that the U.S. has been involved with. I don't think it has any interest in replicating what the United States has with the Fifth Fleet, for example, in the Gulf, which is a huge operation on, on every level. I think China would like to principally be thought of as a partner. It would like to be thought of as innovative. 
it would like people to say there's no need to choose. You don't have to choose between the U.S. and China. You can do both. And I think in some ways we've seen that in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The Middle East is not lined up with the United States, despite almost a half century of the United States committing troops and money and effort and all sorts of things to trying to grow a rule-based order in the Middle East that would protect countries from invasion. And when you try to to apply that rules-based order to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the response of countries in the Middle East is we don't really have a dog in that fight. You know, and I think for, for China, that's actually a huge victory. And for the United States, it's a huge defeat that hasn't really been recognized. Can you expand on that a little bit more in terms of how the Middle East has positioned itself with respect to Russia and Ukraine? Are we seeing any countries in the region sign on to the G7-led sanctions against Russia? Well, they're not interested in the sanctions. I mean, you have countries like Turkey, you could argue whether Turkey's in or out of the Middle East, but Turkey has said no warships can go through the, the Dardanelles and the Bosporus. That's a problem when the Russians need to, to rotate their ships. I, I would say that Turkey is, is measured but not neutral in this conflict. The oil-producing states have said, look, we need a relationship with Russia. So we don't support invading other countries, but we need to maintain open, open lines of communication. Israel has a, a coalition government, which is pretty fragile. Arguably, when they come into session next, it's going to collapse. And you have the, the foreign minister being much more critical of Russia than the prime minister is willing to be. If the government collapses, then the foreign minister becomes the prime minister so, and, until elections are held. So I think Israel is in a, a sort of betwixt and between situation. But it's more common to have a situation like you have in Egypt, which has seen prices for important commodities like wheat skyrocket because of this conflict. They have strong relationships with Russia for a nuclear plant, uh, arms deals, other kinds of things, strong historic relationships with the United States, an effort to build relationship with China. And they say, how can we choose? Just, you know, we're, we're trying to feed our people. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be put in that impossible situation. And as I say, from an American perspective, I think given what the, the way the U.S. has tried to invest in the Middle East, that's not the outcome Americans would have expected. Now, you can give any, sort, any number of justifications that the Iraq War wasn't actually legal, that the U.S. has never cared about legality when it comes to the Arab-Israeli conflict. I mean, you, you, could, you could justify a lack of interest in supporting a, a U.S.-led rules-based order in the Middle East. But I think from a U.S. perspective, the U.S. really was trying to create that rules-based order and was investing in rules-based order. And the beneficiaries of those investments say, you know, when the elephants fight, the grass gets trampled, don't be fighting, don't get us involved. Given this regional dynamic, from your perspective, do you see this as an opportunity for China to potentially increase its influence in the region, particularly building on Russia's influence in the region? Has the United States, for example, communicated any form of disappointment to our Middle Eastern allies and partners about their positions? 
Well, there's a lot of disappointment that's being communicated between the U.S. and its partners and allies in the Middle East. Uh, they've been disappointed with the U.S. The U.S. has been disappointed with them. Unclear where all of that goes. But I think that the bottom line is, is the Middle East an obviously pro-American region? You could argue 20 years ago, the evidence was pointing very much to the Middle East being a pro-American region. And, you know, around the year 2000, every country, every country in the Middle East had a close relationship with the United States or was seeking a closer relationship with the United States. I don't think you see that. I don't think you see the United States seeking a closer relationship with every country in the Middle East. They say the perception in the region is the U.S. is trying to find a way to, to wriggle out of the region. The, the U.S. is looking, as, as the, the White House has, has said many times, looking to right-size American commitments with the resources that it can put toward it. I think a lot of countries in the region are saying, well, how do we balance our interests? There's a certain interest in hedging against American abandonment. And China certainly doesn't replace the United States. China doesn't, you know, no country or collection of countries can replace the United States. But there is a sense that a different balance with the United States is beneficial. And I think there is a broader sense that the Chinese logic that you don't pick sides, you work with all sides, is the dominant logic in the region to the disappointment of Americans who nurtured on the experience of the Cold War in Europe, thought, yes, it's all about choosing sides. Are you on the, the blue team or the red team? And I think what we're seeing in the Middle East and elsewhere is we don't have a team. Are you seeing, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a change in regional perceptions, potentially more positive perception of China, since China, like Egypt, has tried to stake out a position in the Ukraine conflict uh, and portray itself as not taking a side? I don't think Chinese soft power has, has been enhanced. I don't think U.S. soft power has been diminished. If anything, Russian soft power has been diminished, partly because you know Russia gained a positive impression from the way it really tilted the balance in the Syria war. And Russia, with fewer than 5,000 troops and two dozen fixed-wing aircraft, saved the Assad government. I mean, that was, and, and, you know, people came from all over the world to look at Russian equipment and how Russian operated. I think Russia had came out of Syria with a really enhanced position in a sense that Russia is a serious military that's worth paying attention to. And the way the military has acquitted itself in Ukraine, a lot of the bloom is off the Russian military. But I'm not sure that, that it's accrued to either the United States or China. I think there's, there's more of a sense that, that of realism about Russia. And I think if you look at Russia in the Middle East, you know, China's had a lot of attractiveness that it's offered the Middle East. There's the, the Chinese growth story. There's government's interest in dealing with China. You know, China does things quickly. It does things cheaply. It is a model of how you can have economic transformation without social and political change. There's a lot of interest in the Chinese experience in getting away from the American insistence that if you want economic transformation, it requires social and political transformation to go along with it. But, you know, where that actually goes for, for how much people are favorably disposed to anybody, I think it's kind of in a, in a, a stalled pattern. Let me switch gears a bit and follow up on one recent Chinese activity. 
A couple weeks ago, we saw Chinese Defense Minister Wei Fenghe travel to Iran and meet with the Iranian president, and the two sides discussed elevating their military cooperation. Wei said that the Chinese military is willing to maintain strategic communication with Iran, make good use of the cooperation mechanisms, and boost pragmatic collaboration so as to lift bilateral military ties to a higher level. How do you interpret Wei's visit to Iran? How much does his visit build on the 25-year agreement the two countries signed in 2021? Is this visit, in your perspective, an important milestone in their bilateral relationship? From what I know about it, it's not that important a milestone. The, the, the 25-year agreement remains a secret agreement. I think the Chinese use it partly as a signal for the United States. They let the Iranians have it as a signal. You know, in point of fact, when push came to shove, China, I don't think, was that helpful to Iran in the JCPOA negotiations in Vienna. I think the underlying reality is China is happy to use Iran to tweak the United States, to send signals to the United States. But when it comes to the idea of is China really willing to take a bullet on behalf of the Iranians, I think the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. China has much greater interests, much more important partnerships. It has an economic and military relationship with the United States that is many multiples the size of its Iran relationship. And if the Iranians forget that, it's at their extreme peril. I think China uses Iran, China finds Iran helpful in calibrating its relationship with the United States. But Iran remains a tool for China. And this is in no way a relationship of equals and not really a relationship that the Iranians have much control over. Could you give a little background on what role China has played in JCPOA or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action negotiations regarding how to keep Iran's nuclear program peaceful? You just mentioned you have not seen China help Iran advance its nuclear capabilities. Could you expand on that? So China's role in the JCPOA, sort of when these negotiations started um, many years ago, China often did whatever the Russians did. And China was an additional vote in line with whatever Russia decided to do, and they let Russia take the, uh, take the pressure. I think in, in, in the fall, there was maybe a sense that China was going to be a little bit harder, that China was going to be looking after its own interests, that China might not be so easily brought along with an agreement, that China could actually play a role of a spoiler if China's needs were met. I haven't heard that in the last few months when negotiations almost broke down after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It was Russia that seemed to be holding things at peril rather than China. And it it feels to me like in the last three or four months, China's decided that this just isn't an issue that they want to expend capital on because expending capital would create costs with the United States in the bilateral relationship. And again, I think the Chinese interest in taking a bullet for the Iranians is very, very low. So I think they were sort of exploring it for their own reasons. I think they decided not to to pursue it. It's sometimes useful for there to be Iranian-U.S. tensions for China. But the idea of spending resources to help Iran seems to me to be pretty far from the way that the Chinese leadership thinks about the world. Let me also add a little bit here. 
at least from a Chinese perspective, U.S.-China relations are not going too well. So even if China were to spend some political capital helping Iran, I'm not sure it would significantly worsen U.S.-China relations. But perhaps part of China's calculation is also how does upsetting the JCPOA or stopping these discussions from going forward undermine China's larger relationship with the Middle East, as well as China's interest in stability in the region. Yeah, certainly there's there's a there's a Saudi cost to it. There's an Emirati cost to it. You know, they get, they get more oil from Saudi Arabia than they do from Iran, and when you add the UAE onto it, it's even more, and, and Oman is more. So you have a number of countries in the region, and Iran is is a smaller fraction than these other countries combined, and that's partly because the other countries wanted to ensure that Iran was not the number one supplier. You know, again, I, I think that there's a certain calculation behind the Chinese approach to the region, which has not been the way the U.S. has approached the region. The U.S. has tried to approach the region in terms of these long-term relationships and security and comfort and all those kinds of things. And as we've seen in the in the Ukraine crisis, the, the region doesn't necessarily feel a necessity to reciprocate all the time. I think China has has managed partly because people's expectations for the future role of China are so high and their expectations for the future role of the U.S. are so low, that China's managed to derive benefit from keeping everybody on their toes, keeping everybody a little bit insecure. The U.S. incurs costs by keeping people a little bit insecure. China accrues benefit. But if you think about it as, you know, stock options, the fact that everybody expects China to have a larger role in the future means people will go long on China. And the fact that everybody expects the U.S. to, to not play as significant a role in the future means everybody wants to go short on the United States. The reality of the situation is the United States has by far more assets to play with in the Middle East than China does in terms of diplomacy, in terms of security, in terms of weapon sales. On, on, sort of on, a, on a wide range of levels, and in terms of, sort of culturally, educationally, people in the Middle East aren't flocking to go to Chinese universities. Some are going to Chinese universities, and some are learning Chinese. But the number, in comparison to those who want to go to Western universities, there's no comparison. There's no Chinese equivalent to getting a Harvard degree in the Middle East. And yeah, I, th I think one of the strange phenomena is that everybody seems to be involved in this, this options trading game of going long on China and short on the United States. But it obscures the reality, which the Chinese are well aware of, that the United States is the preponderant power in the Middle East and will be the preponderant power for the foreseeable future. And China is a changing power, but it's not one that's going to displace the United States. Another point to add to that is that it's not guaranteed that China's current growth and power trajectory will continue. The folks that are betting that China's stock will grow over time, that bet is not without risk and uncertainty. There are two things that people don't talk a lot about in the Middle East. One is the, the possibility of a, a soft or hard landing for Chinese economic growth. The idea that, that China's future is going to be really different from their past. The Middle East is still pretty high on, on China's 13-year annual growth percentages, which are in the past and, and not in the future. 
But I think that there's, there is this strong belief in the Chinese economic miracle. And I've been trying to have conversations with people in the Middle East about what the energy transition looks like and how different ones of the great, how different great powers may have different attitudes toward the energy transition. What are the broader social and political changes that come along with the energy transition? And there's not a lot of interest in discussing those issues either. I, certainly, I did speak to a, a Gulf foreign minister about it, and he sort of looked at me and he smiled and said, I wonder if Iran thinks at all about the geopolitical consequences of the energy transition. But I think there is an important conversation to be had about what the energy transition will look like, how it will change the way the world relates to the Middle East, and the Middle East relates to the world. And will China's trajectory in that be the same as the United States, different from the United States? I think that's tremendously consequential geopolitically, and nobody's thinking about it. John, I think what you're saying is that people are not sufficiently considering how future China-Middle East relations could vary based on changes in important factors like how China thinks about energy and how China's economic growth could slow in the coming years. As we consider these potential alternative scenarios or trajectories, how do you see the future of China's relations with the Middle East? I think there are, there are a lot of variables. As you say, one is... is the energy mix. One is how interested these countries are in relationships with China and what they're willing to do for China. I think China is going to be very selective in who it engages with and under what terms. You know, I know it's, it's controversial to talk about debt traps and things like that, but I could imagine a range of attitudes toward engagement with China. China uh, Chinese financing Things like that. Partly it depends on what the United States does and what people think the United States will do. But to me, the, the recipe in the Middle East more broadly is for both more volatility and more heterogeneity. That is, I think you'll see different countries trying different things, different mixes, uh, different levels of success, different uh, levels of governance different skills of governance. As I'm sure when you've spoken to, to Chinese experts about the Middle East, they see the Middle East as a, an area of uncertainty. It's an area of danger, an area where the United States is a preponderant power. I've not detected a lot of enthusiasm about deep Chinese engagements in the Middle East. And depending on how we proceed on the energy transition, I could see some of that manifesting itself with China being much less interested in the Middle East in 10 years than it is now. So looking forward, what worries you the most in terms of Chinese developments in the region? The thing that most bothers me is the U.S. approach to, to growing Chinese influence is the United States has to counter everything China does by doing bigger and better. And you know, there's no sense of prioritization. There's no sense of nuance. We can spend ourselves silly trying to beat China at everything. And it seems to me we have to be more selective, both in terms of sectors, in terms of countries that we care about. We need to be 
more willing to calculate the balance of, of pluses and minuses in a relationship. We have to be willing to decide what we absolutely need to frustrate, what we'd actually like to encourage, and what we're indifferent to. And we're not good at that. We, we still see the world through this Cold War prism of choose sides. And I don't think that world is coming back. I think it, in some ways, doesn't give us credit for the power and influence that we have. But it also commits us to, to operating frantically to do everything we do and everything they do better than they do it. And we can sort of whip ourselves into a frenzy without really getting ahead. And it seems to me that the, of the things we should be learning from China in the Middle East, one of them is, you know, sitting back and thinking about what really matters. It's not so much a luxury as a necessity. In terms of the United States needing to be more selective, are there one or two examples that you have in mind where the United States did not need to do as much as we did to counter Chinese influence or activities in the region? You know, a lot of what we've done to counter China has not been public. So it's hard to, it's hard to say. There certainly was a lot of concern about the Chinese effort to build a military facility in Abu Dhabi. What the progression of that was, I don't know. It seems to have been a, a failure on both sides, on the U.S. side and on the Emirati side. Uh, I don't know how we got there. There have been a number of things with Israel, which have gone through several iterations. I'm not saying we shouldn't object to any of those things. I'm not sure when in the process we objected to them. But it, it does feel to me like there, there are some pieces of Chinese engagement, which actually can be in the U.S. interest, right, in terms of economic development and, and, and things like that. And, and we shouldn't be concerned about it. We should be welcoming it because the United States' interest is in a, a more prosperous Middle East. If you look at it, the Middle East as a place where economies are potentially going to fall apart, they're not going to be able to create jobs for all their young people coming to the job market. That's not a good look for the United States. It's not a good look for U.S. allies and partners in Europe. That's a real problem. I think we have a, a broader interest in trying to encourage the prosperity and viability of the region. So in the interest of time, I'd like to ask you one final question to wrap up this podcast. Do you have any additional recommendations for the U.S. government when it comes to Chinese activities in the Middle East, in addition to being more selective and not needing to counter every Chinese move in the region? I don't think we appreciate our advantages enough. I think we're getting a little frantic trying to counter the Chinese, and we're not doing what we should do to strengthen what are already our strengths. I think the Chinese are very aware of what our strengths are. I think the regional governments are aware of our strengths. But we're so, we sort of aren't aware of our strengths, and we keep beating ourselves up about what we can't do, won't do, shouldn't do, all those things. I think there, there, there are positive things we can do which would advance our interests, which play to our strengths, which we need to accentuate. But we have to, we have to be thinking more strategically about what we're trying to do and what we bring to the table and how much influence we have by virtue of 
the investments we've made, by virtue of the model we represent, by virtue of our, our economic, military, political, diplomatic, intelligence strength. You know, I think one of the things, and, and I'm sure you appreciate this, many of your listeners appreciate it. Americans don't understand, systematically don't understand how much different we are than every country in the world in terms of power. We have a lot of people. We have a lot of money. We have a lot of capabilities. We have a lot of innovation. We sort of assume it's normal. And I think we, we end up that sense that we're in a, a near term rivalry with everybody isn't helping our strategy. I'm not saying we should rest on our laurels, but let's be accurate about just how much we bring to the table and don't be embarrassed about it, but, but let's be fair-minded about what we have to offer, our willingness to offer it freely and how we can do so in a way that advances American interests. So this relates to your earlier point, Perhaps the regional perception that China stock is on the rise is partially our doing. We are portraying China to be more powerful than China actually is. And that is also impacting how the region is assessing U.S. power versus Chinese power. That's exactly right. Thank you very much for joining us, John. This is a fascinating discussion. Bye. It's great to join you. Thank you.